0: Section 7 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by S.K. Edison, New Jersey Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard Section 7 Thomas Jefferson, Part 2 in seventeen hundred sixty-eight when jefferson was twenty-five he went down to shadwell and ran for member of the virginia legislature it was the proper thing to do for he was the richest man in the country being heir to his father's forty thousand acres and it was expected that he would represent his district he called on every voter in the parish shook hands with everybody complimented the ladies caressed the babies treated crowds at every tavern and kept a large punch bowl and open house at home. He was elected. On the 11th of May, 1769, the legislature convened, with nearly a hundred members present, Colonel George Washington being one of the number. It took two days for the Assembly to elect a Speaker and get ready for business. On the third day, four resolutions were introduced, pushed to the front largely through the influence of a new member. These resolutions were, one, no taxation without representation, two, the colonies may conquer and unite in seeking redress for grievances, three, sending accused persons away from their own country for trial is an inexcusable wrong, four, we will send an address on these things to the king, beseeching his royal interposition. The resolutions were passed. They did not mean much anyway, the opposition said, and then another resolution was passed to this effect. We will send a copy of these resolutions to every legislative body on the continent. That was a little stronger, but did not mean much either. It was voted upon and passed. Then the Assembly adjourned, having dispatched a copy of the resolutions to Lord Botetourt, the newly appointed Governor who had just arrived from London. Next day, the Governor's Secretary appeared when the Assembly convened, and repeated the following formula. the governor commands the house to attend his excellency in the council chamber." End quote. The members marched to the council chamber and stood around the throne waiting the pleasure of his lordship. He made a speech which I will quote entire. Quote, Mr. Speaker and gentlemen of the house of burgesses, I have heard your resolves and augur ill of their effect. You have made it my duty to dissolve you, and you are dissolved accordingly. End quote. And that was the end of Jefferson's first term in office. The reward for all the handshaking, all the caressing, all the treating. The members looked at one another, but no one said anything, because there was nothing to say. The secretary made an impatient gesture with his hand to the effect that they should disperse, and they did. Just how these legally elected representatives and now legally common citizens took their rebuff, we do not know did Washington forget his usual poise and break out into one of those swearing fits where everybody wisely made way? And how did Richard Henry Lee like it? And George Wythe and the Randolphs? Did Patrick Henry wax eloquent that afternoon in a bar room? And did Jefferson do more than smile grimly, biding his time? Massachusetts kept a complete history of her political heresies, but Virginia chased foxes and left the refinements of literature to dilettantes. But this much we know. Those country gentlemen did not go off peaceably and quietly to race horses or play carts. The slap in the face from the gloved hand of Lord Botetourt awoke every boozy sense of security and gave vitality to all fanatical messages sent by Samuel Adams. Washington, we are told, spoke of it as a bit of upstart authority on the part of the new governor, but Jefferson, with true prophetic vision, saw the end one of the leading lawyers at williamsburg against whom jefferson was often pitted was john wales i need not explain that lawyers hotly opposed to each other in a trial are not necessarily enemies the way in which jefferson conducted his cases pleased the veteran wales and he invited jefferson to visit him at his fine estate called the forest a few miles out from williamsburg now in the family of mr wales dwelt his widowed daughter the beautiful Martha Skelton, gracious and rich as Jefferson in worldly goods. She played the spinet with a great feeling, and the spinet and the violin go very well together. So, together, Thomas and Martha played, and sometimes a bit of discord crept in, for Thomas was absent-minded, and, in the business of watching the widow's fingers touch the keys, played flat. Long years before, he had liked and admired Becca, gazed fondly at Suki, and finally loved Belinda. He did not tell her so, but he told John Page, and vowed that if he did not wed Belinda, he would go through life, solitary and alone. In a few months, Belinda married that detested being, another. Then it was he again swore to his friend Page he would be true to her memory, even though she had dissembled. But now he saw that the widow skeleton had intellect, while Belinda had been but clever. The widow had soul, while Belinda had nothing but form. Jefferson's experience seems to settle that mooted question, Can a man love two women at the same time? Unlike Martha Custis, this Martha was won only after a protracted wooing, with many skirmishes and occasional misunderstandings and explanations, and sweet makings up that were surely worth a quarrel. Then they were married at the forest, and rode away through the woods to Monticello. Jefferson was twenty-seven. And although it may not be proper to question closely as to the age of the widow, yet the bride, we have reason to believe, was about the age of her husband. It was a most happy mating. All their quarrelling had been done before marriage. The fine intellect and high spirit of Jefferson found their mate. She was his comrade and helped meet as well as his wife. He could read his favourite Ossian aloud to her, and when he tired, she would read to him. And all his plans and ambitions and hopes were hers. In laying out the grounds and beautifying that home on Monticello Mountain, she took much more than a passive interest. It was our home, and to make it a home in very sooth for her beloved husband was her highest ambition. She knew the greatness of her mate, and all the dreams she had for his advancement were to come true. With her, ideality was to become reality, but she was to see it only in part. Yet she had seen her husband re-elected to the Virginia legislature, sent as a member to the Colonial Congress at Philadelphia, there to write the best known of all American literary productions. From their mountain home, she had seen British troops march into Charlottesville, four miles away, and then, with household treasure, had fled, knowing that beautiful Monticello would be devastated by the enemy's ruthless tread she had known washington and had visited his lonely wife there at mount vernon when victory hung in the balance when defeat meant that thomas jefferson and george washington would be the first victims of a vengeful foe she saw her husband war-governor of virginia in its most perilous hour she lived to know that washington had won that cornwallis was his guest and that no man save washington alone was more honored and proud virginia than her beloved lord and husband She saw a messenger on horseback approach bearing a packet from the Congress at Philadelphia to the effect that, quote, His Excellency the Honorable Thomas Jefferson, end quote, had been appointed as one of an embassy to France in the interests of the United States, with Benjamin Franklin and Silas Dean as colleagues, and knowing her husband's love for Franklin and his respect for France, she leaned over his chair and with misty eyes saw him write his simple, no, and knew that the only reason he declined was because he would not leave his wife at a time when she might most need his tenderness and sympathy. And then they retired to beloved Monticello to enjoy the rest that comes only after work well done, to spend the long vacation of their lives in simple home-keeping work and studious leisure, her husband yet in manhood's prime, scarce thirty-seven, as men count time, and rich, passing rich, in goods and hands and then she died. And Thomas Jefferson, the strong, the self-poised, the self-reliant, fell in a helpless swoon, and was laid on a pallet, and carried out, as though he too were dead. For three weeks his dazed senses prayed for death. He could endure the presence of no one save his eldest daughter, a slim, slender girl of scarce ten years, grown a woman in a day. By her loving touch and tenderness, he was lured back from death and reason's night into the world of life and light. With tottering steps, led by the child who had to think for both, he was taken out on the veranda of beautiful Monticello. He looked out on stretching miles of dark blue hills and waving woods and winding river. He gazed, and as he looked, it came slowly to him that the earth was still as when he last saw it and realized that this would be even so if he were gone. Then, turning to the child who stood by, stroking his locks, it came to him that even in grief there may be selfishness, and for the first time he responded to the tender caress, saying, Yes, we will live, daughter, live in memory of her. When two men of equal intelligence and sincerity quarrel, both are probably right. Hamilton and Jefferson were opposed to each other by temperament and disposition, in a way that caused either to look with distrust on any proposition made by the other. And yet, when Washington pressed upon Jefferson the position of Secretary of State, I cannot but think he did it as an antidote to the growing power and wanting ambition of Hamilton. Washington won his victories, as great men ever do, by wisely choosing his aides. Hamilton had done yeoman's service in every branch of the government, and while the chief sincerely admired his genius, he guessed his limitations. Power grows until it topples, and when it topples, innocent people are crushed. Washington was wise as a serpent, and rather than risk open ruction with Hamilton by personally setting bounds, he invited Jefferson into his cabinet, and the acid was neutralized to a degree where it could be safely handled. Jefferson had just returned from Paris with his beloved daughter Martha. He was intending soon to return to France and study social science at close range. Already he had seen that mob of women march out to Versailles and fetch the king to Paris, and had seen barricade after barricade erected with the stones from the levelled Bastille. He was on intimate and affectionate terms with Lafayette and the Republican leaders, and here was a pivotal point in his life. Had not Washington persuaded him to remain, quote, just for the present, end quote, in America, he might have played a part in Carlyle's best book, that book which is not history but more, an epic. So, among the many obligations that America owes to Washington must be named this one of pushing Thomas Jefferson, the scholar and man of peace, into the political imbroglio and shutting the door then it was that hamilton's taunting temper awoke a degree of power in jefferson that before he wished not off then it was that he first fully realized that the united states with england as a sole pattern was not enough a pivotal point yes a pivotal point for jefferson america and the world for jefferson gave the rudder of the ship of state such a turn to starboard that there was never again danger of her drifting on to aristocratic shoals, an easy victim to the rapacity of Great Britain. Hamilton's distrust to the people found no echo in Jefferson's mind. He agreed with Hamilton that a quote, strong government end quote, administered by a few provided the few are wise and honorable is the best possible government. Nay, he went further and declared that an absolute monarchy in which the monarch was all-wise and all-powerful could not be improved upon by the imagination of man. In his composition, there was a saving touch of humor that both Hamilton and Washington seemed to lack. He could smile at himself, but none ever dared turn a joke on Hamilton, much less on Washington. And so, when Hamilton explained that a strong government administered by Washington, President, Jefferson, Secretary of State, Hamilton, Secretary of Treasury, Knox, Secretary of War, and Randolph, Attorney General, was pretty nearly ideal, no one smiled. But Jefferson's plain inference was that power is dangerous and man is fallible, that a man so good as Washington dies tomorrow and another man steps in, and that those who have the government in their present keeping should curb ambitions, limit their own power, and thus fix a precedent for those who are to follow the wisdom that jefferson as a statesman showed in working for a future good and the willingness to forego the pomp of personal power to sacrifice self if need be that the day he should not see might be secure ranks him as first among statesmen for a statesman is one who builds a state and not a politician who is dead as some have said others since have followed jefferson's example But in the world's history, I do not recall a man before him who, while still having power in his grasp, was willing to trust the people. The one mistake of Washington that borders on blunder was in refusing to take wages for his work. In doing this, he visited untold misery on others who, not having married rich widows, tried to follow his example and floundered into woeful death and disgrace, and thereby were lost to useful society and to the world and there are yet many public offices where small men rattle about because men who can fill the place cannot afford it bryce declares that no able and honest man of moderate means can afford to take an active part in municipal affairs in america and bryce is right when jefferson became president in his messages to congress again and again he advised the fixing of sufficient salaries to secure the best men for every branch of the service and suggested the folly of expecting anything for nothing, or the hope of officials not, quote, fixing things, end quote, if not properly paid. Men from the soil who gain power are usually intoxicated by it. Beginning as democrats, they evolve into aristocrats, then into tyrants, if kindly fate does not interpose, and are dethroned by the people who made them. And it is not surprising that this man, born into a plenty that bordered on affluence, and who never knew from experience the necessity of economy, until in old age tobacco and slavery had wrecked Virginia and Monticello alike, should set an almost ideal example of simplicity, moderation, and brotherly kindness. Among the chief glories that belong to him are these. 1. Writing the Declaration of Independence. 2. Suggesting and carrying out the present decimal monetary system. 3. Inducing Virginia to deed to the states as their common property, the Northwest Territory. 4. Purchasing from France, for the comparatively trifling sum of $15 million, Louisiana and the territory running from the Gulf of Mexico to Puget Sound, being at the rate of a fraction of a cent per acre and giving the United States full control of the Mississippi River but over and beyond these is a spirit of patriotism that makes each true american feel he is parcel and part of the very fabric of the state and in his deepest heart believe that quote, "a government of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth." end, quote. end of section 7